Well, let me invite you to join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And we'll be looking at verses 1 to 6 together today. Mark 6, 1 to 6. A few weeks ago, my stepfather uh, passed away. I lived with him and my mom uh, my last few years of high school. I had a good relationship uh, with my stepfather, though he uh, certainly had his flaws. He was always kind to me. I enjoyed being around him and I'm I'm thankful uh, for the chance that I had to be with him. A variety of factors, though, made it very difficult to try to share the gospel with him. I remember on two separate occasions trying to do that, wanting to do that, wanting to talk to my stepdad about Jesus. And both of those conversations that we had, uh, they just felt super awkward even to try to have them. And then on top of that, when we did have them, it just felt like they were never really going to go anywhere. To the best of my knowledge, though, most of my siblings and I all shared the gospel with him. He never gave his life to Jesus Christ. I'm guessing that you have some relationships and people and settings in your own life where you feel a bit like that. People that you, you just desperately love and care about. And yet trying to share the gospel with them seems so hard and challenging. Maybe they are particularly antagonistic to even having a conversation like that or Those conversations have been had in the past and didn't seem to go well, or maybe somebody got upset. Settings like that are awkward, and uh, there, there can be those where people are just particularly calloused, tough, or evasive. And maybe you've got some situations like that in your life. Jesus certainly did. Presenting the gospel is unusually hard at times, and yet God has called all of us to do that. To be those who testify of Jesus Christ and his saving power and work. Jesus based his ministry out of Capernaum in Mark chapters uh, 1 to 5. And maybe you've noticed that in the first five chapters of this book. Everything's happening kind of in Capernaum, in and around the Sea of Galilee and that, that region. But now the preaching mission of Jesus takes him 30 to 40 kilometers southwest of there, up into the hill country of Nazareth. In Mark 6, 1-6, Jesus tries to preach the gospel and share the good news with people in a place uh, that is just unusually hard. And these people are unusually hardened. It's his hometown. And when Jesus goes there, it does not go well. Nazareth insults and they reject Jesus. And you will find that there are certain places too in relationships where presenting the gospel can be kind of like that. In Mark chapter 6, verse 1, as Jesus goes to Nazareth, to his hometown, uh, Mark 6, verse 1, inserts the fact that his disciples went with him there to Nazareth. A disciple is an intense learner. Jesus had called these men to follow him and intensely learn from him. They were there to learn. And the way that Jesus conducts himself in Nazareth should probably really instruct you and I as we carry on Christ's mission of preaching, presenting, and heralding the gospel. You need to learn from Jesus here. Because the greatest preacher preached with loving resolve, you should persevere in preaching the gospel, even in places that are difficult. Let's look at Mark 6, 1 to 6. I'll read through these first six verses. It says, He, and that's Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? 
How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Uh, We'd like to just make four observations this morning about the greatest preacher, about Jesus. What do we note about him in this text and what he did in Nazareth in this very tough ministry context? First, the greatest preacher didn't shy away from tough places. Look back at verse 1. It says, He went away from there, from where he had been ministering, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Jesus is heading to Nazareth. Nazareth was a tough place. Let me tell you a few things about it, and I think you'll, you'll start to understand. Uh, for starters, Nazareth was a small hamlet. It was quite small. One person described it this way as an obscure hamlet of earthen dwellings chopped into 60 acres of rocky hillside with a total population of 500 at the most. Okay, so this is a a small place, a few hundred people uh, built on the rocks on the hillside. Some think as few as 150 to 200 people lived there. Uh, The entire community of Nazareth may have not been much bigger than the crowd gathered in this room this morning. It was basically a nowhere town made up of nobodies where everyone knew everybody, which can be really awesome at times and terrible at other times. That's Nazareth. Nazareth was the hometown of Jesus. He had grown up there. He had played there. He had learned carpentry there. He had worked with people there and for people there. He had socialized there. All the above. Some of these ladies had probably even changed his diapers. And many of these people knew him well. His family was still there. They had been there forever. And we know as well that Nazareth had actually already rejected Jesus. Why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 28 to 31. Luke's gospel indicates that Jesus had made a previous trip to Nazareth sometime prior to his Galilean ministry. Most of the chapters that we've already looked at in the book of Mark, they're happening there in Galilee. And Jesus, sometime prior or in and around there, had had made a, a different trip to Nazareth. And on that occasion, he taught in the synagogue and all was going well and great until he said something that enraged absolutely everyone. If you're there in Luke chapter 4, look at verses 28 and the few verses after it. Luke 4, 28 says this. It says that when they heard these things, when the people heard what Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, all the synagogue, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were enraged at what Jesus was saying. And verse 29 says, And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Not sure exactly how it was that he managed to escape, but they tried to kill Jesus in Nazareth. So why is Jesus going back to Nazareth? Why on earth would he? I mean, would you go to the place that, you know, if somebody tried to kill you somewhere, would you be going back? 
Why is he going back to Nazareth? Because these people need the gospel. And Jesus loves them. Some of you have big, thick uh, calluses, perhaps, on your hands, especially, I think, once it gets nice, if, if, if you're doing any type of manual labor, once it gets nice out and you start doing things out, outside, whether that be raking or something else, I mean, you just get these big, thick calluses of skin layer after skin layer after skin layer on your hands. Calluses can be really tough. And some people uh, can be kind of like that toward Jesus in the gospel. They're just hard. And there's layer after layer after layer of hardness, perhaps, that's been built up over years and years and years, and they just don't want to listen. They're just hard. They don't even want to let the conversation happen. And maybe having that conversation feels a bit like trying to plant seeds on a concrete driveway. I mean, you're just throwing seeds on concrete. Nothing's going to happen. It just doesn't work. And some people can be so, so hard to Jesus for whatever reason, and often we don't know. Maybe it's something that happened in their past. Or, but it's just tough. And maybe even actually aggressively coming and attacking in some ways. The greatest preacher didn't shy away from tough places and tough people. You and I should persevere in preaching the gospel. Jesus cares very much about that very, very hard person in your life. And we know that. I mean, just look at the fact that he went to Nazareth. Jesus cares about these people. And Jesus cares about the person in your life. And there's a good chance he wants you to be the one that brings his loving care and the gospel into that person's life. And sometimes at some point you're just like, I just, I don't know. It's not worth it. Jesus could have said that. But instead, he's walking right to where these people live, and he's loving them, and he's caring about them, even though they're hard. And maybe you sit here, and and you are a tough person like that. You are hardened to Jesus and his message and Christianity and the church. Maybe you've actually legitimately been hurt and wrongs have been done, but at the end of the day, you're hardened towards Jesus himself. Maybe you are that tough person. Hardened to Jesus and his message. Jesus loves you so much and he still wants what he has to say to come to your ears because it's good news. And he loves you and he cares. A second observation about the greatest preacher. The greatest preacher didn't always see the desired effect. Approximately one year has transpired since the citizens of Nazareth had attempted to murder Jesus, what we saw there in Luke. And in the meantime, Jesus has just exploded in popularity in the region of Galilee and uh, the Capernaum area. And word just spread because he's been healing people. He's been performing miracles. He's been making massive statements. And he's become so popular with so many people uh, in that region and the surrounding area. And so one might expect that, okay, well, Nazareth tried to kill Jesus, but maybe they're starting to come to their senses and realizing that, well, lots of other people think that he's pretty awesome and amazing. Maybe we should reconsider. Maybe Jesus will come home a hero this time, but he doesn't. They do, however, give him another chance to teach in the synagogue. And what happens next is an instructive lesson. Some people are astonished by the gospel. They're enthralled by it. They're captivated by it. And they reject it. Look at verses 2 to 3. It says, On the Sabbath there in Nazareth, he began to teach in the synagogue. 
And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty or miraculous works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus is no doubt as he stands in the synagogue preaching the same gospel message that he preached in Mark 1, 14 and 15 and everywhere he went. Look back at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 and let's just remind ourselves what Jesus was preaching and saying to people. Mark 1, 14 to 15 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus is no doubt preaching that same message, maybe expanding on it, maybe teaching that message from the Old Testament. And the people listening ask five questions among themselves, and each one of those questions is essentially a question about origin. And the questions start, and they're related to his divine origin. The first three essentially uh, hone down on, on that. His teaching, his wisdom, his miraculous power. Nobody could argue with it. People had seen it. People were talking about it everywhere. Where did he get that? And it's like they're recognizing, in a sense, at least intellectually, that, well, it's almost like his origin is divine, that he's God. And that he comes from God. But then there comes this massive hang-up for the people in Nazareth, and that has to do with his human origin. Look at verse 3 again. Is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. What words do these people use to describe Jesus? He's a carpenter. Son, brother, man. All these words are pointing to his human origin and something that the people of Nazareth knew better than anybody else. And they were astonished at his teaching and miracles and what those things indicated about perhaps his divine origin, but they got hung up on the fact that he's just a man like us. I mean, we have known this man for years now, decades He's just a man like us. We've known him his whole life. And they cannot fathom the human origins of Jesus that were so familiar uh, to them with the possibility of him also being divine. No, this doesn't work. He can't, no. And they tripped and they fell hard on their faces over that. Some people take offense at the gospel and flat out reject it. The end of verse 3 says, and they took offense at him. Uh, the original word means to cause to be caught or to cause to trip or to fall. Uh, we get our English word scandalized from it. Uh, the noun form of the word is often used of traps or snares. And that's a bit of the idea going on here. Sometimes people trap animals uh, or snare animals. And some traps are the type which maybe have a stick, and when that, tr that stick is touched or tripped by the animal, it causes the trap to shut. 
When I was a boy, we had a massive chipmunk problem around our house, and they, they seemed to burrow, and, and then the ground would cave in, and you'd have all these ruts in your lawn, and we had them all over the place, and we finally decided, okay, we're going to, these tiny little chipmunks, like, they need to be dealt with. So we got a uh, little metal cage trap and baited it and set it along the edge of the house. And the chipmunks would run along the edge of the house and they would run through that little metal cage trap. And as they got halfway into the trap, they would trip a mechanism and the doors on either side of the cage would just collapse and fall in and trap the chipmunk in the cage. And that's essentially what's just happened to these people. These people have taken offense. They've been caught. They've stumbled. They've tripped and fallen. They've been snared. His teaching, his miracles, everything about these people, or about Jesus, caused these people to get hung up in a snare. And they've tripped and they've fallen hard over Jesus and his teaching, and now they're offended, and it's just no. The greatest preacher didn't always see the, the desired effect. You might, I mean, we've looked at five chapters in Mark, and people are thronging around him. He's popular, it's crazy. And I think sometimes we forget that there are a ton of passages in the gospel where that's not what's going on. The greatest preacher did not always see the desired effect. And I think it's a reminder to you and I that we should persevere in preaching the gospel. There will be people that you share the gospel with who they are astonished. Maybe they're intrigued, perhaps even bewildered and dumbfounded by Jesus. And and yet somehow they just end up rejecting him. And other people will even take great offense when the gospel is presented. And you may wonder, why, why does this upset you so much? It's, I think it's important that you and I understand that some people will respond like that. However, if offense is to be taken, it should really be with the gospel itself opposed, as opposed to the messenger who's just like abrasive. <laughs> In Jesus' case, he was both the messenger and the message, which is not quite the case with us, obviously. But some Christians, as they share the gospel, the way that they do it is actually offensive and tactless. And some even wear, you know, the gospel's presented in this really offensive, tactless way, and, and, and people get angry with them, and then, well, oh, you know, all these people, they got so upset with me, and all of a sudden that becomes like a badge of honor that I've stood with Jesus and... That's not good. That's not something to be proud of. The, the cross will offend people at times. Galatians talks about something called the offense of the cross. The cross will certainly offend people at times, but we should try to, be, try to avoid personally being the offense. Maybe you sit here and you haven't personally trusted in Jesus and he's not your savior. What is it that you're hung up on? Have you tripped and fallen over something about Jesus? The fact that he is God. Or perhaps it's the fact that he is man. No, he, you may be saying, no, he can't be God. Or you might be saying, well, he can't, if he's God, he, he can't also be a man. You may be hanging up on the fact that how could he be both simultaneously? He must be both. 
Do you realize that if he is not both, he could never save and cleanse you from your sin? He must be both. And the Bible is so clear that Jesus has always been, that he has always been God. There has never been a moment where Jesus ceased to be God. He has always been, and he has always been God. But at a point of time, he added to his deity humanity. He left heaven and came here and took on flesh, a human body like you and me, and blood. And he lived here perfectly and died here on earth, on the cross, to cleanse us and pay the price for our sins. The Bible teaches he is God and he is man. And he must be both in order to save us from our sins. Well, things are not going so well in Nazareth, at least not from a human perspective. Have you ever felt that way? This is just not going well. And it can be discouraging. And you can try to find, you can find yourself trying to identify, well, what's the problem here? <laughs> Why am I not getting the results that I want to see or that I see others getting? You know, it's like Joe over here, every time he shares the gospel with people, it's like everybody gets saved. And it doesn't seem to work that way for me. Or, man, I just like, it's just so hard in this relationship. And maybe you ask yourself, well, well, maybe it's me, you know? Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm not good enough at this or I'm not very good at it. And I mean, we can probably all learn and grow in sharing the gospel of Jesus with people. But there's a third observation that I think is worth making about the greatest preacher, and that is that the greatest preacher did not represent the problem. The problem is not with the preacher or his message here. And I think the fact that this is Jesus, I mean, he's perfect in every way. The problem is not with the preacher or his message. The problem is with the heart. We live in a results-driven world, though, and when we're not getting the results that we hope for, that we think we should get, we start to evaluate. And it's often at that point of evaluation that we go really far astray. I think we need to ask this question. Is the gospel faithfully and lovingly and clearly being presented to people? Is that happening? If so, the problem is not with the preacher or his message. The problem is with the heart. And almost everything Jesus says in verses 4 to 6 point to that as he responds to how these people have responded to him. Nazareth is a lesson for all of us that in some places and in some hearts, Christ receives no honor. Christ is given no honor. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, he's responding now, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In other places, people honored and they elevated Jesus. In other places, people responded to Jesus and they they fell on their faces and they worshipped him. And they took the words that Jesus declared to them in prophetic form and they, they said, yes, this is right and this is true and we believe. Not Nazareth. Perhaps there's another lesson here for us as well. Sometimes the hardest people to reach with the gospel are the people that we know best. Uh, that, that was the case with Jesus here. He's in his hometown. These are all the people that know him better than anybody else. This is his own family, his brothers, his sisters, his relatives. 
And often for us, we can feel that too, that some of the hardest people to share the gospel with are the people that we love the most. Our closest friends, our family members, the people that you spend 40 to 60 hours to, next to every single week working alongside of. That's not always the case, but often it is. But there's something bigger going on here, and that's just the idea that in some places and hearts, Christ receives no honor. That's what happened in Nazareth. And along with that, in some places and hearts, Christ does almost no supernatural work. Look at verse 5. It says, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Just think about what's happened in previous chapters. Prior to this account, Jesus had had literally just raised Jairus' daughter from the grave, from the dead. He had just healed a woman with an issue of blood that she had been plagued by that for 12 years. Nobody could help her, and Jesus healed her. He had just delivered a man from thousands of demons on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's a totally changed man. Around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had done all kinds of miraculous things. And verse 5 says of Nazareth that he could do no mighty work there. He couldn't. He did a few things, yep, but not very much. And verse 6 attributes that to the unbelief of the people. There's no belief there. Christ's saving of people from their sins always happens in conjunction with belief. There cannot be salvation where there's defiant unbelief. In some places and some hearts, Christ receives no belief. Look at verse 6. It says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. The people were astonished and they marveled at Jesus in verse 2. And now things have, have, have swapped. Now he's the one astonished. Now he's the one marveling at them. And, and I think what verse six, does, verse 6 does, it goes to show just how illogical unbelief is. Jesus is marveling. Unbelief doesn't make sense. All the logic can be right in front of someone and they may even in their heads go, yes, I know, I'm a sinner and Jesus is God and he died for me. Yes, 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 no. I don't want that. I refuse to believe that. All the logic can be right in front of someone. You can even present the greatest argument and a person still not believe. I'm sure that Jesus presented the gospel perfectly. An airtight case. But they flat out rejected it. The problem is not with the preacher or his message. The problem is with the heart. I think looking through verses 3 to 6, this has kind of been specifically focused on a person believing the gospel. But I think there's also a broad general principle in verses 4 to 6 worth noting. In verse 4, we see that there is no honor. And in verse 5, we see that there's no mighty work of God. And in verse 6, we see that there is no belief. No, no, no. We don't have this, we don't have that, and we don't have that either. What would you think if I took those things and put them into an equation for you? What if no honor for Jesus, 
plus no belief or trust in Jesus and his words equals what? No mighty work of Jesus. Where Jesus is not elevated and where he is not trusted and believed in, there is no mighty work. That is a place where Jesus does very little. That's the equation that Jesus gives to us. But I want to ask you this question. If that's the equation, kind of all stated it there in the negative, know this, know that, equals none of this. Do you think it's possible that if that statement was put in the positive, that it might generally be true? What if we said it this way? What if we said, honor for Jesus, plus belief and trust in Jesus and his words? Could it be possible that that equals something or potentially equals something? The mighty work of Jesus? The place, whether it be the heart of a person or whether it be a church like ours or some other place, but the place where Jesus is honored and elevated and his words are honored and elevated and the place uh, where Jesus is trusted and believed in whatever he says that is true and we, we choose to believe in it and trust in it and rest our lives and build our lives upon it, the place where, where Jesus is honored and he is believed and trusted, could that just happen to be a place where Jesus does mighty, mighty, supernatural works? You want to see God do great things in your life. You want to see God change and transform you to make you look more like Jesus Christ. You want to see God do great things in, in your little church right here in Beaumont. And you want to see God do great things in your own personal ministry endeavors as you seek to serve the Lord. Well, let me encourage you to take those two things that we have seen and put them together and leave the results up to God. You elevate Jesus Christ and you trust in him and his words and what he says. And if you do that and if I do that, I think what we will see is his power again and again and again and again and again. And it may be seen over periods of years and decades, maybe not right there when we want to see it. But I think where Jesus Christ is elevated and trusted in and believed in, that, that is a place where he works. The Lord said this in Isaiah 66, verse 2. He said, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. No honor, no belief, no mighty works. What if we have this honor, belief, and the mighty work of God? The greatest preacher did not represent the problem here in Nazareth. And there's a good chance that in your own situation that you're thinking about, the problem, it's not, it's not with the messenger, it's not with the message. It's with the heart of the person. And God wants you to persevere in preaching the gospel. If you are faithfully and lovingly preaching the gospel, the results and the metrics are really not your problem. And in fact, I think we do a lot of stupid things when we start to think that way and we start to think that this comes down to human achievement and what we can perform and what we can accomplish. We just get stupid and dumb. If you are faithfully and lovingly preaching the gospel, the results and the metrics, that, that is not your space. That is God's space. 
And nor are those things, the, the metrics and the results, they are not the gauge of success, nor are they the gauge of failure. And by way of encouragement, we know that two of Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, eventually believed. We have uh, books in our Bible written by two of the brothers of Jesus, James and Jude. God saves hard people. And God could be doing something right now that you don't see. And you're just trying to be faithfully, you may, faithful, you may be just trying to faithfully share the gospel and love people. And you're like, man, this person is hard. I don't know if they'll ever get saved. Well, be encouraged by James and Jude because they did. And again, if you're sitting here and you are that hard person and you're like, I don't know about this Jesus guy. I don't know if I'm going to. I know. Here's a simple fact. You must trust in Jesus to experience his saving work. Christ cannot save anyone who will not believe in him or who will not essentially come to him and say, I need you to save me. And now is the time to do that. I think there's something sobering in this passage. Regarding Nazareth, verse 1 tells us that Jesus came. And verse 6 conveys that he went. And the rest of the story gives the impression that Jesus never returned to Nazareth again. He came, he went, and he never came back. He never returned. It really didn't end well for Nazareth. Jesus calls for faith today. Jesus did something so great for you when he came here to earth and took on flesh and blood and ultimately went to the cross and died to pay for your sins. He's holding out to you the greatest gift of cleansing and forgiveness. But you have to say, yes, Lord, I believe, not just with my brain. Not just that I can logically piece these things together, that Jesus is God and he died on the cross for my sins and I can be cleansed and forgiven as a free gift from him and not my own works. Well, it's more than just your intellect. It's, the, it's your trust. It's, yes, Lord, that is me. Save me. I do believe. Will you do that for me? Would you do that today? All that we've seen so far specifically applies to maybe how we present the gospel. But it's also more or less all true as we continue to share and minister that same gospel to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. As we try to help others grow, as we try to uh, be involved in other people's lives and come alongside of them and, and help them take next steps in the walk, their walk with God as, as we try to continue and do that same thing. Some Christians can actually, actually represent tough gospel ministry. It's like, well, I thought we all loved Jesus here and wanted to grow, and you just, what's going on? <laughs> and again, just like is the case here in Nazareth, the problem, it's within. And so how do we respond to all that? Whether we're sharing the gospel with a hardened unbeliever or it's actually a Christian that just seems like they are tough. How do we respond? Well, Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. The gospel is rejected in Nazareth. Their response would cause any person to be hurt and discouraged. I mean, put yourself in Jesus' shoes here. I know you people. I love you people. Didn't we? We grew up together. We shared so many happy memories and experiences together, and it's ending like this. And maybe you would think, why bother? It can be easy to feel that way sometimes, especially when people aren't responding or especially when the hurts start to rise. 
that hurt. We have one more thing, I think, to learn from Jesus in this text. A fourth observation. The greatest preacher didn't stop preaching. The second half of verse 6 tells us, uh, and it's almost just, it seems like the narrator, Mark, he's just giving us this really simple fact here. It says this, and he went about among the villages teaching. The preaching mission continued elsewhere. Jesus didn't stop. Nazareth isn't listening. But there is an entire world that still needs the good news. There are tons of people that still need this message. And some of those ears are going to have ears to hear it. And so Jesus, he just keeps preaching and he wants you to do the same. No, no, no. Like, okay, things get tough and things don't always go as I had hoped or thought they might. But we keep going. We keep preaching. We keep sharing. We keep ministering the gospel. Uh, A few weeks back, we decided that we were going to try to hatch chicks at our house. So we bought a cheap incubator on Amazon that would hold 12 eggs. And we put those 12 eggs in that incubator. And actually, we set it right there on our kitchen counter. So maybe none of you are going to want to eat at our house now. But um, there it was right there on the kitchen counter, these 12 little eggs and um, in the incubator and get, get the temperature up in there right to where it needs to be and set. I put a hygrometer in there to watch the humidity and try to keep it just right where it needed to be. And every few hours, the incubator would shift the eggs back and forth so they're getting rolled around and moving and all these things. The incubation period for chickens is about 21 days. So there they are, the eggs going back and forth. And, you know, it's like day three, I'm in there, like, watching the eggs. <laughs> like, nothing's going to happen, right? But it's like, you never know. And every single day, like back to the incubator, looking at maybe, and you got the day 21 or so, like, or day 20, what's going to happen here? You know, when we did that, I just had no idea which one of those eggs were going to hatch. There's maybe all 12 of them will hatch. My wife and I are talking, probably what's going to happen is none of these are going to hatch. <laughs> but I have no idea. 20, 21 days in. I think some were even later, a few days after. I was like, I don't know. We'll just keep them in there a few days longer. And we watched one chick after another start to come out of these little eggs. It was great. We got five out of 12. But I had no idea which ones of those were going to hatch, but some of them did. And gospel ministry is much like that. You just have no idea. Absolutely no idea. You're like, wow, I mean, these people seem tough as nails and hard. Like, they're never going to believe. These people probably will. You don't know. I don't know. And I think how surprised we often are when we're just faithfully sharing the gospel, administering it. The person that comes to Christ or or the person that over the course of, of the years in church life just grows like a weed. And you just marvel. You and I have no idea what God is going to do. But the greatest preacher, what did he do? He just kept preaching. He just kept preaching. He just kept serving. He just kept ministering. And that's what he's called us to do. Because the greatest preacher didn't stop preaching, you should persevere in preaching the gospel. Understand that not everyone is going to listen. Some people may be like, leave me alone. But you should keep chugging along and keep preaching Jesus said that the fields are white unto harvest. He implied there's this massive harvest out there. The harvest is there to be had, but the laborers are few. Stay out in the field. 
And again, maybe if you're sitting here like one of these people in Nazareth, this message is so great that Jesus wants it to go everywhere. So great that after people trying to kill him, throw him over the edge of the cliff, after his own family and friends rejected him, Jesus just turned around and just kept on going. Because the gospel message is awesome. And Jesus wants you to hear it. And he wants you to do what he said in in chapter 1, verses 15, 15 and 16. Repent, believe the gospel. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. Say, God, I don't want that life anymore. Will you save me? And will you cleanse me through the work of Jesus Christ? Because the greatest preacher preached with loving resolve, you should persevere in preaching the gospel. And may God give us the grace to do that very thing. Will you bow your head with me?